I've scored more professional goals than anyone in the history of the game, 184 to be exact, but I never once witnessed the ball hit the net. Although my eyes were open and aimed in the right direction, as soon as leather met rope, the picture went black. Not a slow fade, but a swift guillotine chop that separated the scene from my ability to see it. My mind celebrated while my vision, blinded from adrenaline, lagged a beat behind. And by the time the two equalized, there was a party on the field. High fives and helly as. Upraised arms and pumping legs and bouncing ponytails. I thrived on these brief blackouts, these zaps of instant amnesia. For 30 years, scoring goals was my currency. The one skill I could barter for security and acceptance and love. Rarely did my frenetic brain pause long enough to consider what might come next and how the shape of my life would look without soccer to fill it up. Welcome to In Their Voice, an audiobook club podcast from Chirp dedicated to the most profound human stories, narrated by the people who live them. I'm Caleb Gotthart, an editor at Chirp Books, and I'm joined by my colleague and fellow editor, Meredith Peterson. Every month, we're picking an audiobook memoir that highlights a remarkable life and discussing what spoke to us, what challenged us, and what inspired us. If you, like us, love to listen to stories from remarkable people telling their life stories, especially when we get to hear that story in their own voice, we'd love to have you join us. So here's how it works. First, visit chirpbooks.com slash in their voice, where you'll see a chance to follow our book club. If you click that follow button, you'll be signed up to receive monthly email updates at the beginning of the month to learn what memoir Meredith and I are reading and why we're excited about it. All you have to do is listen along with us and stay tuned for a new podcast episode at the end of each month, where we'll be having an in-depth discussion of our pick. This month, we are discussing Abby Wambach's memoir, Forward. Forward being a clever play in words from her position in soccer, forward, and also the direction of her life in which she is mm-hmm. moving forward. Direction of most people's lives, I would say. Depending unless on your... Unless you're a time traveler. <laughs> time traveler, or just take a different perspective on time. Linear, circular... Who's to say? That's true. That's true. But I wanted to start with a fun little icebreaker that doesn't question the nature of space-time. As and far that's, as you know, so that's, far. That's true. I wanted to talk about soccer. In some parts of the world, in most parts of the world, it's called football, which makes way more sense than American football. <laughs> There's only one part of American football <laughs> in which the foot is makes contact with the ball. Uh, but in every part of the game of soccer does the foot make contact. It's often called the beautiful game. It's the world's most popular sport. And uh, I wanted to ask what your level of soccer, a either interest, knowledge, participation, fandom, where do you fall on the soccer spectrum, Meredith? I think I've maybe mentioned multiple times uh, during this book club that I don't really like sports that much. Um, and unfortunately, Unfortunately, Caleb, soccer Uh is one of my least favorite sports. Oh, Um, no. I keep choosing either your deepest, darkest fear (laughs) 
or your least favorite thing? I promise that I do like some stuff. I have only ever seen one professional game of soccer played in my entire life, and that was uh, the U.S. Women's National Team. It played Australia in like twenty in like Connecticut in twenty. 18 and I was there because my friends who are really into soccer wanted to go and I don't even remember if they won or not. Did you enjoy watching them play? I was 100% more concerned with my pretzel, my soft pretzel and my hot dog. Did Abby Wambach score a goal? Do you remember? I don't think Abby Wambach was even on the team at that point. Okay. All right. I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, picking up. Maybe you're a big soccer guy. I didn't play soccer until I saw the movie with Will Ferrell called Kicking and Screaming. Oh, Have yeah. Seen this movie? Sure. I, I don't like Will Ferrell either, but my fiance loves Will <laughs> what Ferrell. What do you like, loves... <laughs> I know nothing. I like the movie She's the Man with Amanda Bynes. Yeah, Kicking and Screaming, really, that launched my soccer interest as a young, uh, I think it was around sixth grade. And so I'd been playing baseball my whole life, and I was like, I saw Will Ferrell coach a soccer team with Mike Ditka in a fictional movie. And thought, this is my new career. So <laughs> played soccer my whole, actually all three, three of my siblings. Well, I'm one of them. So all three of us, <laughs> we all picked up soccer the next year. Um, and we each stayed with it for, I stayed with it the least. Then my brother, he was better than me. Then my sister made it all the way through high school as a goalie on like our high school's team. So mm-hmm. kicking and screaming really was a seminal moment in the soccer history of my family. My college actually has the Cal Poly has the highest attended college soccer game in the U.S. It's the rivalry wow. between Cal Poly and UC Santa Barbara. Uh, there's a tradition where, for whatever reason, we throw tortillas on the field hmm. um, at any point during the game. Is that uh, for good reasons or bad reasons either? It's unclear. Uh, it happens in both. I traveled once to go to Santa Barbara to go to the away game. It happens there. There's actually trash cans on the way into the game just for tortillas only because they're not technically allowed to bring them. They have to hire around a staff of 50 people to just get rid of tortillas off the field. Caleb, it's a danger to the players. What are you talking about? This is real. And this, none of this is made up. <laughs> but those are fun soccer games, I guess, is the moral of that story. Um, yeah. And if you've ever wanted to see what does it look like when over – 4,000 tortillas are thrown into the air simultaneously. I can tell you it's beautiful. It's a beautiful sight to see. But I will say the U.S. women's team, my sister, again, being a huge fan of soccer, was a huge fan of the U.S. uh, women's team. So Abby Wambach was the name I was familiar with in high school and earlier probably. And we would, you know, my sister was, you know, dedicated, would get up at 3 a.m. if that's when the World Cup game was on. Like she was all about it. So I feel like through her, I was always in the loop on what was happening with the U.S. women's soccer team. And so it's, it was really f- fun to dig into to Abby's story here and get a little bit more of the background and have a little bit of the familiarity around some of those bigger moments like that last-minute 120-minute goal, she, header goal that, like, saves mm-hmm. their World Cup chances. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun in that way. But what did you think? What was your impression um, of Abby Wambach's memoir? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to memoirs and especially like memoirs from celebrities and public figures, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, like there's definitely a spectrum of candidness or maybe like an axis really with like Y being disclosure about what's happened to you and X being disclosure about how that made you feel. Um, and I think she's actually being more candid uh, with the X axis, like the feelings than than the why or like what's actually happening. 
um, mm. which is really different from some other books that we've listened to. So she gives us a lot of access into like old emails and text messages where she's like reading verbatim, like things that she said to people or people said mm-hmm. to her where they're, you know, she's talking about her struggles with the people around her and some of like her emotional issues. Um, and there's just like a ton of emotional baggage that she unpacks in a relatively short amount of time. Like this is, this is a really quick listen and there's a lot of ground to cover both in terms of like her personal life um, and her career. Um, and, and she's not like, she's not the most detailed chronicler of her own life, I would say. Um, but despite yeah, that, right. yeah, but despite that there are some like fairly intense themes that are emerging. So you've got like, deep self-doubt and insecurity she has attachment issues and she's like feels loved and unlovable she struggles to come out um and feel accepted by the people around her she struggles with substance abuse with control issues that's a really big one and something i think we'll delve into more in a bit uh she's got like quite a lot of anger she's and rebellion and she's anxious and she's depressed like all of this stuff is orbiting um I think a good example of this tension is her marriage to Sarah Huffman, who she ends up divorcing. Um, It's like a pretty major emotional through line for her, almost like a barometer for how she's doing, like if her marriage is doing well. Mm -hmm. Um, But she talks a lot more about how the relationship is making her feel than what's actually going on in the relationship. Like I was adrift and anxious and confused because my relationship wasn't going on going well, but like, why aren't things going well? Yeah. Yeah. That part is so vague. And she constantly is referencing like the things I did to hurt her, like the things I did wrong. Like what were those things? Um, like, I don't know. Did you notice the same thing or did you think the events and the emotions were more like balanced? It's interesting. I think, especially as we went later on into her career, I, I felt like that balance was much more emotionally driven versus maybe, and we'll dig into this next, but like some of the childhood sections, you see these kind of seminal moments that after listening to the book uh, seem to be much more profound. For instance, like her father mm-hmm. at the dinner table saying, you know, uh, she scores three goals in a, in a yeah. soccer game, which is, yeah. they have a term for that. It's excellence is called a hat trick. And her dad's first question instead of great job was, why didn't you score four? Uh, around the dinner table. In a game East. where sometimes nobody scores at all. Yes. Not that uncommon, in case you were wondering. <laughs> exactly. So we get the, I think we get a lot of the, I guess the content of some of her emotional drives and motivations or like what fuels her emotional states in some of the earlier chapters uh, discussing her early years, um, her, her childhood, as well as her early years playing soccer in high school and college. And we also get some of her journey of coming out in that process during that time as well. But I totally agree. The When you know that she gets divorced to Sarah Huffman, if you had any familiarity around her life, and I, I'm not sure when she introduces that concept into the book, but we just get the constant sense of strain is really what comes mm-hmm. across. And it's un- a little unclear on what is causing that strain. Though I think like you alluded to, a lot of the themes that I imagine we're going to discuss will explain or are probably the fuel for those uh, those tensions, the reason their relationship wasn't uh, thriving, and the reason their marriage ultimately uh, ended in divorce. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting because she's uh, now somewhat famously married to Glennon Doyle. And I know, uh, I'm like, ugh, that, I wanna hear about that. <laughs> exactly. We need to follow up on that because, you know, I think I want there to, because of how you, uh, 
endearing. I think I ultimately came away with this memoir listening to Abby's perspective and just like she's a very compelling person, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I want, you're rooting for her. Like you're rooting for her to address some of the, the elements that uh, make, I think, her life more difficult sometimes than it had to be. I guess that's the sense I felt in mm-hmm. listening. Even manners are a constant. It is widely acknowledged that the Wambach kids are the nicest and best behaved in all of Pittsford, a conservative suburban community just outside of Rochester. Pittsford is heavily Catholic and affluent, and we not only adhere to, but improve on, its unspoken code. It is mandated that we will be unfailingly polite to neighbors, strangers, and elders. We will send handwritten thank you notes, we will hold open doors, we will not mouth off or cuss. We will attend Mass at St. Louis every Sunday, dressed in our finest, and sit erect in the front pew. That priest up there, my mom whispers, he's watching your every move. God is watching too, so no monkey business. Let's think about, or dig into her childhood a little bit. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a little bit of a balance between, well, it's a quick memoir. We're not going to get, you know, a year by year analysis of, of Abby's life here. But I think, you know, given that it's a sport, somewhat celebrity memoir, you want to get some of the unique details here that are interesting to fans, especially around totally. like, how did you know you were going to be good enough to play professional soccer mm-hmm. and things like that, as well as you get, I think ultimately, which is more valuable and meaty in the book, you get the initial reflections of uh, what parental or familial forces were shaping her identity, her wrestling Mm -hmm. with her own sexual identity, her own athletic identity, uh, her identity with perfectionism, et cetera. What emerged for you or what stories or themes emerged for you in that section? Yeah, I I thought this childhood section was super interesting and I completely agree with you that it, it, it's not like this in all memoirs, but this is one where you really just see the patterns and behaviors that she's going to adopt in her adult life, like completely emerging in childhood. Um, I think one of this book's biggest themes and one of Abby's largest preoccupations, one that she uses to frame and understand like her whole life and many of her struggles is this like dialectic of control and rebellion. And she doesn't necessarily call it out as such, but she definitely talks about struggling with control and she uses this device. She calls like, I think chill Abby and intense Abby yep, to I was explain, gonna say, yep. yeah, to explain how she essentially oscillates like often very rapidly between what she might classify as good behavior. So that's when she's working out, performing well at soccer. She's sticking to a really strict diet. She's eschewing alcohol mm-hmm. and then behavior that she ends up feeling really guilty about, which in her mind is simultaneously tied to laziness. So like not exercising, eating whatever she wants. Um, and this sort of like destructive energy that manifests in bouts of like binge drinking and late night partying. And to me, I see that uh, that as kind of like an intense need for extreme control that eventually leads to a breaking point and her doing everything that she feels she shouldn't or hasn't allowed herself to do. So it's like yo-yo dieting. I mean, it, she literally is yo-yo dieting, but she's also <laughs> like more metaphorically yo-yoing between like a type of control and, re- and then a rebellion against that control. And I think that completely 100% starts early in her childhood where she's being raised in a really strict very Catholic, very competitive household where manners and conduct are paramount. And, you know, they, 
they dress up for church every Sunday and, and the mom is like, don't you dare misbehave in these pews, mm-hmm. even though you're small little children, like you have to get it together, guys. Um, and she has six siblings. They're constantly battling for their parents' attention. Um, the bar is constantly being raised, you know, as you said, her dad's like, why not four goals? Um, so she pushes herself to get her parents' validation and she tries really hard to mold herself to like who they want her to be, but that inevitably develops into a lot of resentment. And then she starts to push back with like small and big acts of rebellion. Like she starts drinking, she like pierces her nose or something, just like teenage rebellions. Um, but then she actually tries to like quit soccer multiple times, mm-hmm. but she like always gets back on the horse and her parents are really like pushing her throughout the whole way. So from a young age, she's in this cycle of like acquiescing to, and then rebelling against her parents' control. And eventually that cycle ends up playing out without her parents. Um, and she's just acquiescing to and rebelling from herself or like versions of herself, this like chill Abby and intense Abby who want different things. And they're both vying for control of her life essentially it's so interesting because towards the end of the book she finally or starts to address her younger self like in mm-hmm. uh like to that young girl and uh and almost like writing a letter to her in that in that stage of her life which i feel like was um it's very revealing and very uh profound in that sense because you see how deep those scars can run especially for people who then get thrown on the world stage. Like we, it's almost like mm-hmm. we get to see the consequences of uh, the pressure that parents can put on their children, especially yeah. in athletics. We know, I think of like the little league dad who's yelling at his son, you know, who's seven years old and is standing alone on the pitching mound. And he's like, come on, son, throw a strike. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. he just learned how to throw two weeks ago. Like, let's give him a little bit of a break. And you start to see Abby responded in many ways the best she could and the best she felt equipped to do. And part of that distorted drive is the reason she's the most goal scoring soccer player in U S history, which Mm -hmm. is a weird tension to struggle with. And I think it's something that we start to also see emerge in her childhood where, you know, you would expect the person who has scored the most goals in uh, like competitive soccer in U S history, man or woman, uh, to like love soccer, to be like, I touched a soccer ball. I think even going back to the kicking and screaming, like Will Ferrell's like, you know, he's like born with the, the joke is he's born with a soccer ball in his crib and all of that. And like loved the game and the process. And Abby explicitly says she did not like soccer. Like mm-hmm. she didn't like the, the yeah, sport. Yeah, there's the, the part where Mia Hamm tells her, like when she's new to the team, Mia Hamm, like legendary Mia Hamm is like, you know, you play this game for the little girl inside of you who fell in love with soccer just for the love of the game. And Abby's like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Like, she, no. Yeah. She's like, that wasn't the case for me. She said, I, uh, I was only capable of falling in love with the validation that comes from mastering the game, mm-hmm. which I think is so interesting. And I think it resonates probably with a lot of like high achieving types is that it becomes hard to decipher between, do I like what I'm doing or do I like the validation I get from succeeding yeah, at what I'm doing? And I thought it, uh, there's a tragedy to that where someone, you know, when you think about how many people's dream it is to play a sport they grew up loving professionally. And for Abby, it was more of there was just always one more level of validation for her to pursue. Mm-hmm. And excellence was um, a clear pursuit of validation. Uh, yeah. And I think that partially explains some of the pressure release valves that she was binge drinking uh 
prescription meds, uh, mm-hmm. this intense Abbey sort of mentality that uh, really stems from a recognition in early childhood that my success or my desire for validation uh, in soccer is actually the core thing that can motivate me to, to, to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really what we see play out in a lot of the struggles that she, de- she details later on. Mm-hmm. I thought that her like lack of, I guess like pure love of the game. Like I found that to be especially surprising and notable when you put it in, in conversation with some of the other stories we've been hearing throughout this book club. Uh, You know, we've heard from a lot of really talented, successful people who've excelled in their fields, and all of them have spoken about, you know, their love of the craft or the art. Um, And it's been it's also been really self-directed on their parts. Like many of them have gone out of their way Mm -hmm. to say this was my dream. Like this was not my parents dream. My parents were not trying to control things behind the scenes or push me like this was this was what I wanted to do. Um, but that's not her Abby's experience at all. Like her parents are absolutely pushing her. Um, and like you said, she develops this belief that soccer is the only way to get their love and validation and by extension, kind of like the love and validation of others. Um, and yeah, that, that contrast is especially stark when you consider, as you've noted that Abby is almost without question, like the best at what she does of everyone we've heard from so far. Like Mm -hmm. we've heard from people who are like, like, it's not just that she's broken into a really difficult and competitive field, but she's also risen to, like, the absolute top of that field and is recognized yes. as, like, one of the greatest players of all time. And I kind of was wondering, like, if she had played it for different reasons, if she had played it more for herself and hadn't been kind of, like, desperately, kind of furiously seeking external validation, like, would she have been even better? Or would she have been the same? Or, yeah. or like was that what was driving her and pushing her to achieve what she couldn't have done otherwise? Like, I think it's interesting that sometimes when the pressure is like really, really on and when she's really built something up as absolutely vital to like securing the love that she feels she's being denied, that's when things seem to go wrong for her. Um, And people are obviously motivated by different things. And like, we'll never know. (laughs) We'll never be able to know like how (laughs) things would have played out if she was a different kind of person or from a different kind of family. But it did make me really sad just to, like, imagine the possibility of her achieving the same level of success or, like, maybe even better results with, like, more security and more consistency from her parents and, like, more joy and more satisfaction in what she was doing. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting, like, thought experiment because I'm thinking of these moments throughout even her young career. I'm thinking of when she first shows up to University of Florida and is, like, a little... uh, underprepared conditioning wise for like the opening, I guess, conditioning test that all players have to take. And what stands out is both her remarkable willpower to just fight through uh, pain in a way that I think most human beings aren't uh, either comfortable or capable of. When she was Uh, like, my body took over, like my body took over from my mind. I was like, can't relate girl. Yeah. What are you talking talking about? about? (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I have distinct memories of, you know, playing sports and doing some like post-practice conditioning where, you know, you start to question a lot of things in your life, a lot of your life decisions. You start to wish, you know, maybe if I fell asleep and didn't wake up, that wouldn't be so bad, you know, like this. <laughs> there's, there's some pretty awful conditioning feelings. I mean, there's a point where she's she's playing be- beyond pain, what's helpful. She's playing through, I mean, during that conditioning test, for instance, she's like 
like peeing herself like yeah, to the yeah. point like and it's like, like throwing up yeah and the context of that story though is that she could have been very prepared she had mm. all the like it wasn't like it was like she, it was unfair to her or that this she didn't know this was coming it was like no because of a lot of her kind of this dichotomy she was partying a ton she was drinking a lot she wasn't focusing on her conditioning and so she had to just suck it up and do it and she um, i guess fortunately for her she's capable of pushing herself to that level with her pure tenacity and willpower which you have to believe is part of the reason she's the goat quite literally mm-hmm. of her, her of her sport but at the same time i wonder like you that seems unnecessary you know you think about i mean even thinking now like athletes are like really much more health conscious than they were you know even like 30 years ago much more clean plant-based diets uh constant massage therapy and like hydrotherapy etc and part of me just wants to go for abby did it have to be this way and i think maybe that's really what she's exploring in the book is like why and it ended up to be these two almost polar opposite personalities where you see this superstar athlete who's never done it like that but when that pendulum swings the other way she is someone that you almost don't even recognize Mm -hmm. i developed my own interpretation of newton's third law calculated actions to further my career collide with an equally strong desire to destroy myself for the three weeks i'm at camp i'm all business running drills and practicing headers and solidifying my role as leader. During my off week, I drink until I can't talk or stand or even see. This isn't Chill Abbey, searching for fun and levity amidst a successful career, but a warped, corrupted version of Intense Abbey, with all her focus and ambition turned inward and darkened. maybe we should jump into I think something we've alluded to a couple of times which is mm-hmm. really Abby's relationships to alcohol and uh, pain meds Ambien I think anything in that kind of like heavy narcotic range it's really what frames the the memoir in the, in the first chapter where you, she's in a hotel room after her career and uh, is just you know been drinking a lot of vodka um, she the, the quantities she was drinking and dropping very casually were alarming to me i don't know if you had mm-hmm. the same reaction yeah but um besides this like destructive physical tendencies that we talked about like her her the fact that she has to overcome sort of like either literally her hangover in like a game or like in practices how else did you see either her relationship to alcohol and substances forming or how did you see it impacting her life yeah um i think it's impossible to talk about her substance abuse without talking about her struggles with mental health like they're definitely working in tandem and Mm -hmm. it's it's also hard to kind of untangle the cause and effect like I, i think it's more cyclical like they inform each other rather than one like neatly creating the second it's not just like i'm sad so i drink or i drink and then that makes me sad it's it's both um and one thing that stuck out for me was that the, I guess the triggers weren't always clear to me. Like certainly they are 
toward the end of the book when she's dealing with like a pretty serious mental health crisis as her soccer career is coming to a close and her marriage is failing. But there are other moments throughout when there's just this like general sense of unhappiness and anxiety and a lot of uh, substance abuse is woven into that. But she's not necessarily explaining where it's coming from or what she's unhappy about. And I think that that kind of speaks to how normalized it all is for her. Like she's just sort of accepted that this is the natural state of her life. Um, And it's always kind of lurking in the corners, even when things are going relatively okay or when she's when she's like on the wagon. It's like the threat of things going badly is always there. Um, So I think it would be harder. I think it would be harder to find places where like it hasn't affected her than where it has. Um, Yeah, interesting. Something, though, that I kind of struggled with reading this is that her DUI is the climax of the story, really. Um, And dealing with the substance abuse and the fallout of that is kind of like the denouement. Um, But Mm -hmm. I found it really frustrating that we don't actually see her dealing with her other problems alongside it. You know, like one of these big things, this like struggle for control, this like lack of validation, feeling unloved and unlovable, like uh, frequently sliding into like depression and anxiety. Uh, like we don't really get to the root of like why that's happening or, or how to make it better. Um, we, I mean, we kind of see her like coming to terms with her part in her like marital issues. Um, but other than that, I don't know. I was like, you know, getting sober is, is great, but you also probably need like a lot of therapy, like a lot of it. And the only coping mechanisms that I've seen her use like throughout this book are substance abuse, uh, which didn't work for her, like extreme diet and physical control, which I think like isn't always good, um, especially like the diet part of it. There was like a lot of I I understand that she's a professional athlete and like she needs to be in a certain level of shape to perform. But like there was definitely a lot of like fat phobia and like food shame wrapped up in in this narrative. Um, and then finally, like a couple experiences where she kind of attempts to like decompress and unwind with these sort of like retreats where she kind of withdraws from everyday life and, uh, in a very removed or like solitary way, she just kind of like goes off. Like she's like in the Southwest or she, she goes to like the thousand islands, um, when she gets an injury, um, and like literally doesn't have like internet Mm. or the TV or anything. And I just feel like none of those work for her. Like they've never worked for her. So the ending of this book didn't necessarily have that kind of like calming or like neatly concluded effect that I think she'd intended because it was like, it's amazing that you're sober, but that was not the only problem. And like, what are we doing about the rest of this Abby? Absolutely. I, it's interesting because I was listening to, uh, from a couple years back, she was on fresh air with Terry gross, uh, Mm -hmm great program uh great niche little program most people haven't heard of uh it's ridiculous um and she's talking about how the humiliation of the dui is what is like the motivational factor for her to stop drinking it's like i never Mm want to go through something as humiliating as that again so that's why i'm getting sober essentially is the motivation and i think like you said that's a bit concerning because that eventually humiliation will fade, you know, mm-hmm. embarrassment fades. And uh, if you haven't addressed the core reasons that this uh, pattern emerges so consistently for you and these reasons that we even alluded to that 
begin in childhood and begin with this self-appointed pressure and this self-appointed uh, dichotomy of who she is and her own self-perception, th- these problems are just going to keep reappearing. And mm-hmm. again, this is this is all sort of like I don't know what's happened since this book has uh, been completed, and I know. Like, yeah, you know, I really need. A, about- I really need a follow up, especially because she's married to like a self-help powerhouse, right. and like you definitely get some of that like softer self-help like you can I could see how they'd be drawn like she'd be drawn to somebody like Lennon Doyle because you get some of that especially towards the end of the book where she's like doing a lot of reflecting and there's like a lot of like inner child stuff and like yeah I I'm just like uh I want to know what your relationship is like like I want to know the journey you're on together I'm so curious oh absolutely I I mean speaking of power couples that Actually, we weren't speaking of cow- couples, but that is a definitely <laughs> that is definitely yeah. a power couple, um, and I totally agree. So, I think the other word that comes to mind is like tenuous. Like her her mm-hmm. sobriety feels tenuous based on the descriptions in the book. Yeah, her ability to maintain a healthy relationship feels tenuous for a lot of the same reasons, and I I don't say this at all. I, I don't think either of us are saying this in any sort of judgmental tone. I think there's a sense of like deep empathy and almost concern um, in hearing this story. And I think even comparing, let's think about some of the other, other memoirs we featured. We have Mikel Jolet who, you know, deals with a lot of the same substance abuse issues for somewhat similar, but you know, markedly different reasons, you know, growing up in a cult and having complicated familial parental relationships. And it's his therapy that really, yeah. is what is the most it allows him to first start digging into that inner child and really uncovering and unraveling that pain that he experienced there and then i think of alicia keys going to egypt and doing some of these pilgrimages and joshua tree and as opposed to abby which felt like a very temporary solution alicia goes in with this like very lofty intention to seek uh meaning purpose clarity on her mm-hmm. future life decisions and comes away with it like it feels like she comes away from those retreats having achieved that purpose and so uh, that was, I guess that was markedly different than what uh, it sounded like here. Mm-hmm. Something interesting. I I think this book was published like only a couple of months after her arrest. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I wonder what this book would have been if that hadn't happened. Like, would she have copped? Like, I, I think there was definitely, like, some rewriting going on. You know what I mean? Like, I think you have to, some, right? some things changed. Um, I'm sure the manuscript was, like, farther along. Like, I, I don't think there was nothing. Like, as someone, we work in publishing. Like, we know that's not really how it works. Uh-huh. So I think they probably made some changes. And I am wondering, like, yeah, like, would that have even been a through line? Like, would she have even admitted it? Like, would she have admitted, like, all these problems that she had with substance abuse? Because she seems, like, incredibly reluctant to take responsibility. Like, people are trying to, like, you know, they're like, this is kind of out of control. And, like, at some point, a teammate is, like, your drinking is kind of, like, a problem and, like, a liability for the team. And she's like, okay, well, I don't trust you anymore. Like, you know, just a very defensive response. So, like, if that hadn't happened what yeah like what would this book have looked like i'm 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 pretty curious to know i don't think it would have been as hopeful i think it almost would have felt a little uh fake or yeah. disingenuous i think 
because she couldn't have been honest. And she, in mm-hmm. many senses, she's not being fully honest with herself as she's like writing this memoir, which is, mm-hmm. I think, part of what's compelling about it, to be honest, is that yeah. you're getting someone's like wrestling with their identity. Well, and it's not fully formed. I think this memoir would be very different if it was released today. Yeah. And, uh, and that's probably part of why we're not getting that resolution that I wanted because it was, it's like all too fresh. She's not going to like fix her life in a few months, obviously. Um, right. Right. But I think there's almost a unique, um, perspective we get in seeing it a, a little more raw in that, uh, in some sense, she's also closer to the pain. Um, and, that, and I think that emotion comes across a lot uh, throughout mm-hmm. the book, particularly towards the end. I have much to do, to see, to think about, to plan. Hillary Clinton's people asked me to campaign for her after the holidays. The president of Equinox, Sarah Rob O'Hagan, congratulates me on my amazing year and tells me she can't wait to witness the next phase of my life. To that end, might she introduce me to Wharton professor Adam Grant? He's planning the next People Analytics Conference and thinks I'd make an interesting addition to the lineup. I speak with Apple CEO Tim Cook, who agrees that treating people equally and fairly is ultimately good for business. At the Facebook offices in Northern California, I meet for hours with Sheryl Sandberg in a glass-walled conference room, situated like a giant fishbowl in a hallway maze. Stick to your guns, she tells me. Focus on the feminist aspects of inequality, and the rest will work itself out. On a, on a more positive note, I mean, it, it's complicated too, but Abby, as as an activist, as an agent of change, um, both and it, is something that's, I think, really inspiring um, to take a look at. I think, you know, despite all of her personal struggles, she's really been a force for good in the world and used her platform to really lift up the voices of people who are often not lifted up. Mm-hmm. Um, and use her success as a way to leverage that. I think in t- the two main arenas that, that come to mind, I think, is equity in uh, women's soccer um, and both pay, respect, atten- national, international attention, um, as well as I think, you know, she's become a, a prominent lesbian athlete who has been, her journey of coming out is sort of mirroring this more public uh, reconciling or much delayed uh, acceptance of LGBTQ plus persons. How did you see Abby's, I guess, persona as an activist um, and her perspective on that? Uh, how did you find that in this book? Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not like super familiar with the work that she's done in these spaces outside of what's outlined in this memoir. Um, from the book, she seems more outspoken in the like gender equity space than mm-hmm. in the LGBTQ plus like activism space. Although those things are of course like very, very linked. Um, and that's definitely not a criticism. It's just like the impression I get from her writing and like the kinds sure. of things that she chooses to focus on, on this book uh, or in this book. Um, like that being said, representation is is really important and i think it's huge especially for young people to see queerness represented on such a public stage and to see a queer person celebrated at this massive global level so even if she had like never really publicly spoken about her sexuality beyond just like you know being married to a woman um i think it would still be like a huge impact you know like without her even Mm. trying i think her impact would be would be huge um just because of like the importance i think representation has 
um, in people's development. Um, yeah, we and we see that too in the photo uh, that goes viral after yeah. one of the World Cup games, where she kisses Sarah and, and with the flag and everything, and that becomes sort of a a really uh, iconic uh, display of that mm-hmm. advocacy in a way that's maybe not as publicly spoken about, but I yeah. think is still ends up uh, being important representationally. Yeah. And she's like, I was not trying to like make a political statement. I was just like happy something good had just happened. And like my wife was there and I, we kissed cause that's how life works. Right. Um, but despite like, you know, the intention isn't necessarily important there. Like this, what the symbolism is, um, yeah. So I, I think that was like a, a, a cool moment as well. I also think that her, her, I was like very interested in her, um, like gender equality stuff. And I think that the, um, as someone who is not very tuned in to sports in general and, <sighs> and soccer beyond like what I get from the people I'm around, I, the like pay equity stuff is something that has like trickled into like my corner of, you know, pop culture awareness and and things like that. And like, I think that, and I mean, like obviously rightfully so, but like, I don't also as a person who doesn't know really anything about sports, I couldn't tell you a single thing about like men's soccer in the United States. Like, I don't know who those guys are. Yeah. I don't know what their deal is. I don't think we're very good. Like, you know what I mean? Like, but I know, I know the names of like female soccer, like American female soccer players. You know, like right. they are so good. Like we're so good at at women's soccer, um, and it is like obviously completely bizarre, like the lack of the lack of equity there. And I was like very interested in those parts. Um, and I I wish there had been like a little bit more even. And and I do think that like she's she's been doing more. I get the sense that she's been like doing more like post retirement, you know, like that's part of like what she's been dedicating herself to. So that would also be like a cool thing for a follow up. Agreed. I saw a commencement speech. She recently did a couple weeks ago at uh, LMU, which is a Jesuit school. And it seems to be that she has really found a home and a purpose in a lot of that activism work. Uh, Mm -hmm. she sort of comes to realize in the memoir that she has a gift for being like a compelling public speaker and that her passion comes across really uh, clearly and almost without a ton of preparation. And I, it's exciting to see someone who has that sort of talent. She's able to essentially channel some of her intense Abby energy into Mm -hmm. a more positive force, which I think, um, I think it's going to do a lot of good for people um, and particularly for the causes of like equity and inclusion and representation. I think Abby is a, is uh, an ideal person to be have uh, at the front of that, a movement like that. Soccer is no longer what I do, but it will always be a part of who I am an indispensable thread of my past. I can't deny it any more than I can deny the labels I've claimed in this book. Fraud, rebel, wife, advocate, addict, failure, human, all of them. They'll always be there, stitched into my psyche, even as I make room for new labels, ones I've yet to discover and claim. The maze unfurls itself before me, beckoning. I realize I know where I am, 
and how to find my way back. Meredith, what are you taking away from Abby's memoir? I think that this book is just as much about mental health and a really winding journey toward security and self-regard as it is about a career in professional sports. And not to sound too much like an Instagram infographic, I think it is a really (laughs) powerful reminder that self-actualization that's only focused on achieving external success and validation is bound to collapse eventually. Um, Like you can't throw material achievements at your emotional problems. It's just not going to work. Um, and Abby spends her whole career trying to be the best and by many accounts she is and she's still unhappy and she's still incredibly insecure not just like when the applause ends basically at the end of her career but you know during the applause as well like she might get a fleeting moment of satisfaction and pride but it really is fleeting like then she's kind of back at the bottom of the hill in a mm-hmm. really Sisyphean way like I'm not making any revelatory observations really, but I, I think that it can be so easy to tell yourself that happiness kind of begins and ends at the way others see you and the yes. level of success that you're able to attain, whether that means like your career progress or attaining a certain lifestyle or changing your appearance or expanding your physical abilities. And all of those things are things Abby is really preoccupied with at some point or another. And of course they can and do affect our overall happiness, but at some point you need to ask yourself why you want the things you want and if getting them will really change anything for you. Yeah. I, I feel like this is a story that we've heard a lot of the time. I mean, you think of, I think I'm going to Michael Jordan and the last dance at this documentary series. Mm -hmm. And again, we, Caleb, oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you remember me telling you <laughs> that I don't like sports, but I do like when sports are contextualized as a really big deal. So That's I do. Right. I, do I like I like sports documentaries. I don't want to watch people play sports, but I do want to hear people talk about playing sports. And you like, want to watch people watch people. You want to watch people watch people play sports. Yeah, I exactly. I want to. I don't care to watch sports as part of my cultural consumption, but I like knowing what the place that sports have in culture. <sighs> I like that. I like that. It's a very, um, it's a very m- mature culture perspective, Meredith, and I appreciate that. Thanks, Caleb. <laughs> but I was gonna say, like, I think. We've seen so many stories of athletes who reached the apex. Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. I think Tom Brady's like this too in many ways. He, he's famous. He's like on record after winning his like fourth Super Bowl that he was like, what's next? What now? Mm-hmm. Like, he, um, And Michael Jordan, similar way. I would describe him as a remarkably unhappy person. Yeah. Uh, and the warning signs are there for so much, so many of us. And I would put myself in this category as like high achieving types. And... Mm-hmm. What's funny is like for a lot of us, we'll have the ability to like keep pursuing becoming the best because most of us will never become the best at anything. <laughs> so I know it's really depressing. But like, so you could just keep trying forever. Right. But there is a moment like very suspicious, like you were saying. But I feel like there's an opportunity with stories like this where you, we can learn from people who have become the best and we see the re- that the result is not that you have lived the best life mm-hmm. uh, and that you are. Uh, content or that you are fulfilled uh, even with 
having achieved the most possible success in your chosen field, passion, pursuit, et cetera. And I think that's a lesson that is easy to ignore, but is like there for the taking. There, mm-hmm. She had this, uh, this quote in that, uh, that Terry Gross interview that I, that I mentioned. And she talks about how I want that 10 year old girl to look up and be able to feel and actually do whatever she wants. And then more importantly, that a 10 year old boy, oh, more importantly than the 10 year old girl, I want that 10 year old boy that she goes to school with to be able to look at her and to be able to say that she can do whatever she wants, which is like highlighting kind of her perspective on activism and why inclusion and like centering women's athletics is so important to her and so important to like our society. But I almost feel like you could translate that same lesson to like her candor and honesty about her journey to success here. And that it's almost better for that 10 year old boy or 10 year old girl to listen to the dangerous trap of success and Mm -hmm. external validation as ultimately a meaningless pursuit. (laughs) Uh, Not that the work that she did on the soccer field or that the work that she's doing in the world is meaningless at all, but pursuing it for the sole purpose of external right. validation is is going to be a futile effort. Mm-hmm. And that there's so much more wholeness and satisfaction and contentment on the other side of that if you're willing to look at some of the more painful and uh, challenging aspects of either your childhood, your own struggles, the pain that you've experienced. And I think in listening to Abby's memoir, that's a huge takeaway for me is that no, <laughs> don't the soccer isn't the headline here which is Mm -hmm. interesting because you would think a sports memoir about the most successful soccer player would be about soccer, but it's mostly about the emptiness that she felt at the peak of her field. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, that's true across a lot of different, uh, pursuits and, uh, careers and even becoming a perfect parent or student or whatever it is. And, uh, I think it's an important lesson. Yeah. And this is where we sort of transition into being, more of a self-help podcast. Right. You know, we're going to be giving you a lot of advice, um, you know, some mantras to help you get through the day, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. We're going to start kind of talking a little bit more like this. And a little bit more like that. Thanks so much for listening to In Their Voice. If you enjoyed this conversation, follow our book club at chirpbooks.com slash in their voice, where we'll be posting new book club picks and conversations every month. And if you want to learn more about chirp book clubs, go to chirpbooks.com slash book clubs.